Hi, my name is Suze Morrison. I'm the MPP for Toronto Centre. Welcome to my podcast, Stories for Change. My name is Suze Morrison and I'm the member of Provincial Parliament for Toronto Centre. Tonight we're going to be talking about the importance of the arts and culture sector in all of our lives, in our communities, and the importance of arts as we navigate into recovery from Mm COVID-19. So before we start, I do want to take a brief moment just to do a land acknowledgement. And I want to recognize that while folks may be joining us from uh, all over Ontario or other parts from beyond, that uh, if you're in a different uh, area that you take a moment and acknowledge, acknowledge the Indigenous land uh, that, that you're on, where you're located. But here in downtown Toronto, we're located on the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabe, the Huron-Wendat, uh, the Métis, and most recently the Mississaugas of the Credit um, the area around the, uh, the Great Lakes is also part of the dish with one spoon wampum. Uh, and wampums are, are belts, they're physical belts uh, that were a traditional form of treaty making uh, before contact. Uh, Indigenous folks were making uh, treaties uh, together. Um, and uh, the dish with one spoon is an example of a traditional wampum uh, treaty. And it says that we're all responsible uh, as treaty people for caretaking the land around the Great Lakes uh, together. We're all responsible for sharing the resources of that land from one collective dish uh, with one spoon. And uh, most importantly, there's no knives at the table, symbolizing that we always have to keep the peace uh, in this territory. Uh, So with that said, I'd like to bring our hearts and our minds together in a good way uh, for a really important conversation tonight that I hope everyone gets a lot out of. And I wanted to start by sharing a little bit of a story about why the arts is so important to me. I grew up in downtown Toronto. I was uh, the daughter of a single mom with a disability uh, and she had gone back to school at U of T to make a better life for us. And uh, life was pretty hard for us. And uh, I had the incredible opportunity uh, because of teachers in the public school system uh, that uh, saw that I needed uh, uh, an outlet and I needed access to opportunities that I couldn't afford on my own. Uh, and I had some really great uh, teachers through the, the music program uh, when I was in junior middle school uh, who started giving me private lessons outside of school hours um, so I could learn to play the cello. And with their help, I got into a typical school of the arts for high school in the ninth grade. Uh, And my whole world was about music and my whole world was about my cello. And uh, over the next four years uh, was really when I was exposed to uh, and given opportunities uh, that I never would have had. Um, you know, if it hadn't been uh, for those education workers, for those musicians, for those artists that wrapped the music community around me. And it was a a single point in my life that I credit with um, setting me on a trajectory out of generational poverty. Uh, The exposure that I got to the middle class uh, at, uh, in the programs that I was in, the exposure that I got through, you know, playing in community orchestras uh, and all of the extra volunteer work that I was able to do in the arts community uh, really prepared me to succeed in, in post-secondary and gave me the skill sets to, to succeed in a post-secondary level that I don't think I would have had without the arts community. It really gave me a foundation 
uh, to stand on. Uh, and I really do honestly believe it. If, if it hadn't been for the arts community at Etobicoke School of the Arts, that uh, I wouldn't be where I am today. And I am just so grateful uh, to, to the music community and the arts community uh, for that work. And I, and I see that every day in my community. I look specifically, I think of, um, you know, in St. Jamestown. <clears throat> St. Jamestown is one of the most densely populated uh, high-rise communities in all of Canada. It also has one of the highest rates of poverty. And uh, we have some amazing arts programs there. And I look at the kids in the St. Jamestown Choir, for example, uh, who, um, uh, or reaching out through music. And, uh, you know, the, the opportunities uh, that these young kids are getting through these arts programs uh, are phenomenal and foundational. Uh, it's giving them extracurriculars to put on their resume and their and their high school and college applications. It's giving them confidence. It's giving them uh, opportunities to learn uh, so many wraparound skills that you get in the arts community. Um, and I know it's making a fantastic difference in those kids' lives. Um, so that's why I am so incredibly grateful uh, for arts workers in our community and for the arts community. Um, and particularly in the context of a pandemic, I think it is uh, beyond a doubt, it's the arts that are keeping us all sane right now. <laughs> um, and it's, 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 it's arts and culture that we're industries that we're turning to um, uh, to take care of us during this time. Okay, so uh, with that said, uh, I'm going to do some introductions uh, of our fantastic panels, panelists that we have assembled here today, and I'm so, so grateful for all of you. Uh, so to start, I want to recognize uh, my colleague and special guest, MPP Jill Andrew. Uh, Dr. Jill Andrew is the MPP for Toronto St. Paul's. She is a fierce advocate for the arts and for women's issues. Jill is also the first Black and queer person to be elected to the Ontario legislature. And she's also a community co-owner of Glad Day Bookshop, uh, which is the world's oldest LGBTQ book bookstore and proudly located in my riding here in Toronto Centre. Uh, so we're so glad to have that connection to you, Jill. I'd also like to introduce Ali Momin, uh, and I'm a little bit starstruck on this one because uh, I am a fan of Star Trek Discovery. Uh, <laughs> Ali Momin is an accomplished and award-winning actor uh, who's uh, graced many of the largest stages in North America and has starred in independent major films and many popular television shows. He was last on stage in the smash hit musical Come From Away. On camera, Ali played the lead role in uh, Deepa Mata's uh, Biba Boys and can be seen as Cameron Grant in Star Trek Discovery. Uh, Ali is an educator who teaches at Sheridan Institute and George Brown, and you can catch Ali every week on his podcast, Soft Revolution, uh, where he and his, uh, uh, where he and Torkel Campbell, uh, along with some of the biggest artists um, and thinkers, uh, try to bring art into politics and politics into art. Excellent. Uh, Brian Chang. Uh, is our next panelist. Uh, Brian Chang is a labor organizer and has fought, ha, sorry, has fought for workers at, at PSAC, at OPSU, uh, and is now at SEIU Healthcare. Very exciting move for Brian. Uh, Brian's also an artist and has sung with the Toronto Mendelssohn Choir, bringing music to thousands. As an activist, Brian has taught community organizing at Ryerson University and at the Chang School. And Brian Chang is a proud resident uh, here in Toronto Centre. Uh, we're happy to have you as one of our own uh, and lives with his partner, Jeff, in our community here. Thank you for being with us. Uh, next, we have uh, Vicky Velenosi. Uh, Vicky is an uh, artist entrepreneur from Toronto. She is the co-owner and CEO of Space Space Revolution, providing affordable co-working studio and performance space to Toronto's indie artists. 
During the pandemic, Space Space Revolution's largest location uh, was forced to close their doors, uh, effectively downsizing the company to one third of its original capacity. Uh, since that time, Vicky has been advocating for funding and support for independent arts facilities who typically slip through the cracks of government funding at the best of times. Uh, so I want to thank you for all the work that you're doing, and I'm so sorry to hear um, about how Space Space Revolution uh, has been uh, struggling during the pandemic, uh, but I, I know that, that you're going to bring a really interesting uh, and important perspective today. Uh, and last but certainly not least, uh, we have Justin uh, uh, Anthonis. Uh, Justin is the president of the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, IATSE, Local 58, uh, representing more than 500 stagecraft working professionals in Toronto's live entertainment sector, uh, a veteran stagehand with more than 20 years of experience. His previous positions include posts as the head electrician at the Toronto Centre for the Arts and assistant head electrician at the Four Seasons Centre. Welcome and thank you. Uh, fun fact about the Four Seasons Center is when I was in high school at ESA, uh, I was actually one of the student groups that got to come in for the sound testing uh, at that facility when they were still doing the engineering sound checks. So that was a, a really cool opportunity to come in and check out that space. Uh, so I wanna thank all of my panelists for being here today. Uh, again, I'm so grateful to all of you. Uh, and we're gonna get into some questions. So the first question we have for the panel is, uh, I want to talk about uh, what the arts called what, what the arts sector uh, looked like before COVID, uh, and specifically, what were some of the pressures that the arts community were facing uh, before we even got into the pandemic? Uh, and I think perhaps we'll start with, I'm going to look at my screen, uh, with Vicky, why don't we start with you? Okay, no pressure. Um, <laughs> so I've written down some things because I don't want to forget anything. I the so my my organization provides space for artists, and I feel like I'm obligated to say you know one of the biggest obstacles is finding the appropriate space for what it is that you're doing um, as a performing artist specifically um, because it is so specialized. There's only so so far you can go in your living room with that type of art before you start disturbing neighbors, roommates, <laughs> every, everyone, and then running out of space, especially in a city like Toronto, where we all are often in shoeboxes. Um, but it, it, in my, when I started running spaces, just going back over eight years ago now, I thought that I was solving the problem and just, you know, getting it at, at solving the problem at the base level saying, okay, space, here you go now your problems are solved <laughs> and it's also affordable but that's in fact um that's only solving that's solving the problem at a, at a higher level when what is beneath it is um is this is one the uh the knowledge and ability and resources um just in terms of education to actually um self-create so um, a lot of the training that goes on in institutions and universities, colleges, other types of certification programs, it, ge it gears you toward being hired by somebody. And the, one of the top struggles that any performing artist is facing is that the, the hiring process is close to non-existent uh, in a lot, of, a lot of different spaces and, and areas. Um, so in the pursuit of trying to get hired, you realize very quickly, oh, that's not going to happen. And if it does, it might not be something that's long-term. So that's a big struggle. Um, so any artist has to pay their bills, <laughs> you know, most do anyway. Uh, most aren't fortunate enough to have 
you know, someone else doing it, but uh, so you go to other employment, to what's traditionally called, you know, the, the Joe job or the side hustle. And in that case, what's happening with a lot of artists is they're, they're severely underemploying themselves in terms of their skill set and their, their education. And if you've ever done a job that you're way overqualified for, you know, the emotional toll that can take on you. <laughs> and so in terms of the, another big obstacle that's, that, that's, that, that artists are facing or were facing pre-pandemic, it was just the emotional and mental state that they're in because trying to create in a place where you are not having your basic needs met is really, really tricky. And so now there's this even wider barrier between um, people who face economic challenges naturally in, in different communities um, in creating their art. So providing space is only one piece of the puzzle if you can get past all of these other issues. Um, and so, you know, the, I don't, are we, are we going on to <laughs> talking about potential like solutions for this or? Yeah, we're going to do that in the next question. In the, in the okay, one, but <laughs> that'll be it for what I have to say about that. <laughs> no, that's a great start. Uh, why don't we go to Ali next? So again, we're talking sure. about pressures me in the arts and culture sector uh, pre-COVID. Yeah, first of all, Suze, thank you so much for having me here. So happy to be with everyone. Um, you know, being an artist uh, prior to COVID was a very precarious situation. It was a very binary existence. It was, uh, it was a life of having or not having. Um, and uh, it was a very impermanent existence. I, I think of what, what you were addressing, whatever you had only lasted for a very fleeting moment. Um, throughout my career, I have seen that. And, but what I have also seen in my career is I've seen the possibility for artists to have a middle-class life. And that is the thing that I think about constantly. And it is something that is uh, uh, achievable, I hope, but it's also difficult for us because being an artist, because society doesn't view the artist as a worker, because society doesn't equate a shovel and a violin, it's hard for us to have that life. It's also particularly difficult for women, for instance, because I have seen, for so I started at the Shaw Festival when I first got out of theater school up in Niagara-on-the-Lake, and you would see a, a trajectory of a career for a woman that would be rising and rising and rising, and then they would inevitably face the question of what if I want to have a kid? So it was incredibly precarious uh, then. It is even more precarious now. But I think there is an opportunity for us to, uh, uh, I think the most poetic way to say it is, is uh, as I said, to, to view the artist as a, a worker and to equate a shovel and a violin. I love that. Thank you so much, Ali. Um, why don't we go to Jill next, um, who I see nodding along uh, and I, who I know has been you know, fiercely advocating at Queen's Park, uh, particularly both around arts and women's issues um, and the impact that COVID has had uh, on women, especially. And I know folks mm -hmm. are talking about that as the she, she session. Yes. Uh, sorry, that's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> so, but again, uh, you know, Jill, take us back pre-COVID. Um, you know, what, what were the pressures that you were seeing from a policy lens right. between the arts and culture sector uh, before we even got into COVID. Right. Uh,
Thank you so much again, Suze, um, for, for having me to this, this evening. And I really appreciate the opportunity to, to chat with you all. Uh, Vicki, you took the words right out of my mouth. Um, the access to space was a huge issue um, even before COVID-19. I'm thinking back to what feels like a year or more ago uh, when myself and, and fellow members of the Ontario NDP Black Caucus had held deputations. And I held my culture deputation at uh, NIA Center for the Arts, you know, uh, which is Canada's first, um, you know, black art center located here in my riding of St. Paul's. And it came up over and over again, uh, the lack of community spaces. And also the fact that many organizations, you know, uh, would mention equity or might mention diversity in their applications, you know, funding is then received, but there was really no accountability or responsibility, no checks and balances uh, for some folks to actually show that, you know, their, their, their creative works were amplifying and uplifting the voices of, you know, BIPOC community members, 2SLGBTQIA plus members, deaf members, or disabled members um, of our communities across Ontario. And I mean, going back even further, you know, uh, the Doug Ford government, you know, they certainly um, have not shown, in my opinion, enough love to that $28 billion giant uh, that is the culture sector, you know, here in Ontario, you know, um, employing some 300,000, you know, jobs for goodness sakes. You know, we've seen cuts to libraries prior to COVID-19. Uh, we saw cuts to the Ontario Arts Council, uh, which also I have to, I have to say included the slashing of the Indigenous Culture Fund, which took jobs away from women um, as well too. Uh, so, so much for truth and reconciliation. On that note, uh, we also saw cuts that hit the Ontario Music Fund as well. And, and now, you know, we're in this COVID-19 moment where, you know, as, as MPP Morrison said at the top of the hour, uh, the arts have been the saving grace. You know, I have said consistently, uh, the arts have been the social medicine uh, getting us through this pandemic. And now we see that there has been, you know, some trickle fundings, you know, uh, the Ontario Arts Council has received, you know, a, a one-time uh, investment. But what I'm hearing from my arts community and, and arts communities across Ontario is that this funding isn't even for individual artists, per se. Uh, this is for arts institutions and organizations. And there's questions, you know, with regards to who's the institution, who is the organization, who qualifies, what's the criteria? But at the end of it all, we have individual artists you know, who haven't been uh, respected, in my opinion, and haven't been paid, uh, the, you know, uh, haven't received, you know, the kinds of supports that they need uh, during a pandemic. So we need to know how is the government of Ontario supporting artists who have to pay rent, have to pay for food. Uh, some artists are also on ODSP, OW. Some artists are paying for medications all of this while still trying to, to maintain their craft. And of course, as Suze, um, you know, hinted, uh, the situation is often worse for women. Uh, the situation is often worse for trans community members. The situation is worse for bike park artists and disabled artists. I could go on and on and on. Uh, even in the best of times before COVID, the average artist income, 20 something thousand dollars, uh, indigenous artists, 16 something thousand dollars a year, you know, 
Um, I would, I would, you know, I would ask any government member, any member at all, you know, uh, to live in this day with this level of inflation, uh, with all the responsibilities that each and every one of us have as members on 16 grand. And, you know, I'm also hearing from our arts community uh, that we need to amplify the call for basic income, you know, something that could be specifically supportive uh, to artists, to individual artists, uh, to gig economy workers who are all too often, you know, piecing things together, you know, uh, jobs where their, their rights, uh, health and safety may not necessarily be prioritized, uh, positions that may be non-unionized, you know, like we, we need better for Ontario artists and entrepreneurs because that's who artists are. This is not a hobby. This is not just some fluff thing. This is your career. Uh, you're an entrepreneur and you are generously giving up yourselves during COVID uh, and certainly before COVID. So Ontario needs to do better by artists in my opinion. Thank you so much, Jill. Uh, I think we'll go to Justin next. Uh, and you have a really neat perspective uh, in terms of the arts workers that are working behind the scene, the, the, the stage workers uh, and the technical staff that, uh, that uh, make so much, um, uh, such a big impact uh, on the culture sector as a whole. Um, so again, you know, from your perspective, what were some of the pressures you were seeing in your industry uh, pre-COVID? Well, I think the, uh, and first of all, thanks for having me and I'm uh, honored to be on a panel with all of you here today. Um, I think I want to piggyback a bit on what Ali was saying was, you know, the precarious nature of the sector uh, is something that transfers across, you know, not just to the artists, but the people who support the artists. Uh, and, you know, if you think about it this way, for every person you see on that stage, there's probably a dozen people back there behind them supporting that person on that stage. Mm -hmm. uh, whether they're technicians, whether they're agents, whether they're bartenders, ushers, whoever you want to talk about, there's so many people who rely on a healthy and vibrant sector and the precariousness that affects, it affects us all. You know, again, uh, Ali's uh, been quite successful recently, uh, but I'm sure he can talk about the struggles that he's uh, endured to get to the place where he is right now. Uh, and with, you know, come from away, been running for three years and Star Trek, the, those things could end quickly uh, with and forces completely out of his control. And he's back into the point of this precarious work environment. And so I think that is the biggest thing that it works across the sector, whether you're looking into theater, whether you're looking to uh, dance, whether you're looking into music or visual arts or anything, the precariousness is something that transcends the entire sector. And I think that's something that we need to try and focus on and try and improve for everyone. Thank you so much, Justin. Uh, and finally, wrapping us up on the first question, uh, we're going to go to Brian. Uh, what were the pressures you were seeing in the art sector uh, pre-COVID? Thanks so much. And it's really exciting to hear all of you talking about these, these issues. And I'm happy to be joined by this uh, illustrious panel. It's really fantastic. Um, there are so many things that like are just lighting up in my mind as I'm hearing you all talk. And it's, it, it's good. So it's not by, it, precarious work is not something to just happen. It's by design that we've ended up in this situation. So when we're talking about how do we deal with these ups and downs, 
um, when people are, have employment or they don't have employment, this isn't unique to just artists. It's across it's across all industries. Um, but something that's not available to worker uh, to to arts workers that is available to other workers are things like EI. So when you're working on a grant and you have a grant from the Canada Arts Council or the Ontario Arts Council, you're not technically employed. So then how do you you don't have insurable hours? So what does that count towards? When you're talking about um, the average uh, worker. So I was looking at the federal economic snapshot that came out yesterday. I was looking through some of the numbers that were even included in that. Arts workers, the average arts worker uh, in Canada makes $24,300. So even if you did qualify for EI, 55% of that would be just over $13,000. That's what you would have access to. Because of the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, uh, and, and people are seeing what something looks like, like a basic income. And in, in many cases, people are making more money than on the Canada Emergency Response Benefit than they were working in the arts. And that's really messed up. Uh, so we have to have discussions about what are we paying people? how the system is set up, who has access to things um, like EI that help people move into the middle class um, as we know it. Um, if we're talking about institutions, we have to think about the money that's being provided. So if you look through, uh, through MPP Andrew is, is right to talk about that institutions are getting money, not individual artists. So the National Arts Center is getting $18.2 million just for the National Arts Center. I don't know how much of that money is actually gonna go to the actual musicians themselves. Uh, we're seeing some of the best musicians in the entire world, like those that are uh, employed by the Metropolitan Opera, being laid off from their jobs, not being paid for, for, for not even being paid money that they were owed previously. There, there's so much. I also want to mention, and it's really important, music education. Now, right now, our schools are in a crisis, and they're not able to, I don't know what's happened to music programs right now. For the few schools that have that, they, they, they can't participate in music like they, they were um, prior to the pandemic, which what I'm really worried about is that we're losing in a generation. We're losing a generation of, of potential students who can be exposed to music, like Suze was, like I was back in elementary school and high school. I didn't have a music program until I was in high school, actually. So had it not been for publicly funded education and that opportunity, I wouldn't be a member of the Toronto Mendelssohn Choir right now. I wouldn't be able to sing um, with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra and create all of this amazing music for, uh, for, for people all around. So I think we also have to look in terms of institutions. I think it's really important, $55 million. They, the federal government has talked about they provided 500 million. If you look at how much they've actually provided to Canada Arts Council, it's 55 million. And then if you, and of that money, the bulk of it's being given to existing relationships. So if you're looking at the unearmarked money that's available for people who don't have a prior existing relationship with the Canada Arts Council, it's $390,000. That's it. So there's a lot of work that we can do, and, and, and we have to hold our, our elected officials to account. Can I just, I just wanted to say something quickly with Brian said about, you yeah, know, please go ahead. Yeah. And I think one of the other issues that we see in the arts and culture sector is a misclassification of workers. Uh, and that's something that needs to be corrected as well, I think. And I think, you know, so many people should be employees of and have an employee relationship with the uh, arts and culture sector in industry that they're working in, not just working as a contractor and forced to find this on their own. There's a huge problem with the misclassification most people who work in arts and culture are told when to show up, they're told when to leave, they're told what tasks to do at hand. They're employees, they're not independent contractors. That's a really big thing. It is a job. People have this, uh, I think, this romantic idea of what we do. 
Yeah, but and I understand it. We we are part and parcel of that. We've created that magic show. You come in, and whether it's on stage or whether it's in an art gallery, like you don't see the the sausage being made. You know, so they, all you see is that magic. But at the end of the day, uh, uh, it is a job. And I want to make a comment on that twenty four thousand eight hundred. That's definitely an average because I know artists, and uh, I know I've also had years where I wish I made twenty four thousand dollars eight hundred. That'd be nice. You know, so I want people to just be fully aware and also to ask yourself, you have an average of $24,800 when the return on that effort from artists, as you know, Jill, you mentioned, is profound. In Canada, it's 3% of our GDP, 650,000 jobs. So at some point you gotta be like, what are we giving? And are we getting a fair deal? Which goes to what I've been pushing for which is an arts new deal, which is akin to what happened in the Great Depression when FDR viewed, as I said, a violin and a shovel are the same and a works program was created for artists that hired hundreds of thousands of artists across the country to create political justice and spiritual beauty. And it took that country to the next level Whatever we think of American culture, culture to me is a magnet. It's what draws people, the fictions, the stories. That's what brings people. Listen, people ain't going to America for the healthcare. They're going to America or they believe it's, tr it's true. They believe in America because of the stories that are told. And so I think we have this moment now to kind of make a leapfrog movement like that and to go exactly to what you said, Brian, to go fund artists, not organization. So not trickle down, trickle up. Because if you give the artist a, a, a money or an opportunity to make something, guess what? Everybody is, is figured out. Artist needs to get space. Artist needs to hire a technician. Artist needs to get some music. You know. And then one final thing I want to talk about this Arts New Deal and what also happened to the WPA was that it opened up one of the mandates was to bring about the voices that were marginalized, women, racialized voices for the first time we're given an opportunity because as you mentioned brian you know getting a grant it's not easy and the one thing you realize in this business is that the same people get the same grant over and over and over again and you, and, and and it's it, that's a big problem so one of the mandates of of the wpa of the works progress administration was that we are actually going to create an overabundance of work that we are actually going to hyper-produce stuff at, for a reason. So, you know, I really hear, oh, here comes my dog. When I get, when I get passionate, <laughs> he shows up. I told you, Susie's gonna oh do my this. God. Okay, no, thank you for that. That is such an important comment. Okay, so we've talked about um, a lot of the, the pressures that the, the arts uh, and culture sector were facing pre-COVID. Um, let's, uh, I, I'm a little cautious of time. We've got three more rounds of questions to get through. So let's make this one a little bit quicker. Um, but uh, what's changed since COVID? So how have all of those pressures been amplified since COVID started? Uh, why don't we go to Jill first? Hey, here I am. Uh, what's changed since COVID? Well, for goodness sakes, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but um, things have gotten worse. At the end of the day, uh, you know, we're not able to consume arts uh, the way we once did. Uh, and uh, that being said as well, artists and cultural workers don't have the same access 
um, to their income that they once had. Um, a friend of mine who's a photographer uh, said to me, Jill, I feel like I've lost a part of who I am. I, I feel like my self-esteem is under attack because I can no longer do what it is that I do that makes me who I am, right? So, so, so we have to have a conversation here, um, not only about saving artists and about uh, saving cultural workers. And by saving, this is not some uh, Robin Hood narrative that I'm selling. We're talking about creating government policies that actually uh, impact people's lives in a positive way, right? Uh, we need to also address mental health because I'm telling you, I can't count the number of artists, the number of cultural workers, uh, the number of theatrical stage workers, um, makeup artists that I have spoken to who right now are also having mental health crises because they're not able uh, to manage um, under the lockdown, again, that we're under a second time uh, for a whole plethora of reasons because the government hasn't listened to public health officials, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, so really, what's happened since COVID-19? Uh, in my opinion, we have seen a loss of, of certain cultural icons and certain cultural landmarks uh, in our writing, and we have to do everything we can uh, to gain those back and to ensure that voices um, are heard and, and that the government uh, recognizes how important the arts are uh, to not only our, our identity as a nation, uh, but to job creation, you know, to the post-secondary choices that students will make. You know, what Brian's, I think it was Brian who said about the loss of a generation of artists. I heard that during cultural uh, deputations just this summer. You know, this is exactly what we're doing. Um, if we lose music, if we lose theater, uh, if we lose visual arts, and, and shout out to all of those arts teachers, uh, because Brian, you're, you're very right. You know, I've heard from, you know, Music Ontario, for instance, and, and, and educators in music and in theater classes, that in some cases, their classes are being used by other more quote unquote essential courses. Uh, well, try tell that to the kid who is disengaged and disenfranchised in school. Uh, research shows that it's the arts that often re-engage kids. Uh, like many of you on the panel, I was re-engaged in school uh, because of vocal class, because of theater and Miss Gattensby. And, you know, th these are important parts, not only socially, uh, but academically as well uh, for young people to thrive. So. I can't say that things have gotten better. Um, I do think they can with our activism and with you know our, our collective pulling together, um, but they're not great right now, Suze. Thank you so much, Jill. Uh, I think we'll go to Vicky next. Um, you've experienced a lot of changes since COVID-19 started. Uh, do you wanna tell us a little bit about that? Uh, sure, I, I mean, it, my aim in my organization is to provide space opportunities to performing artists at the lowest level of their careers so when they are just getting out of school when they're just getting to the city to try to try things out to start their new theater company like that's that's what i support and i always uh prided myself on on making sure that i was sustainable uh without any government funding because i i just gave up i just said you know what forget it and i was a lot better off when i did that because then i could actually focus on making sure that i could have the longevity that i wanted to have in the organization 
And this is the, with COVID happening, it was the very first time where I went, I, I actually can't fix this. Like, I, I can't, there's no, there's no avenue for me to be able to keep the spaces open. And I, I was faced with uh, an ultimatum from my landlord at my one location that I could leave and not take on any further debt. And he couldn't come after me. Or I could stay and then, you know, see what happens. But and then I owed all of these, you know, tens of thousands of dollars that I had no way of paying because we were government mandated to be shut down. And there was no light at the end of the tunnel. There were they didn't want to take rent relief. I couldn't force them to, and I was just hands tied. So I I tell that story because I'm not the only space that went through that. And one of the benefits of this. Of, you know, the silver lining of this is that I have banded together with other spaces across Canada and trying to started to try and advocate, but trying to, the biggest challenge of that is trying to find spaces that still are standing. Even pre pandemic, trying to find spaces that were standing was really hard. Now it's like, hey, I know about your space. It closed, closed in August. Oh shoot, oh, that one was done in September. That like, so they are falling every month, more and more are falling. And there's, there's no, there's no support to stop them from falling. So, I mean, in terms of how things changed in COVID, it's that, that the opportunities for people who are trying to get started in their careers and are taking those first steps, that's disappearing faster than anybody can, can stop it. And that just creates an even greater divide between people who are starting out and who are actually able to access the resources, the grants, the, you know, you, you often with grants, not that I have a huge knowledge of them, <laughs> like, as I mentioned, I was like, forget it <laughs> a long time ago, but I know that there is often, especially for operational funding, you need to have certain, a, a certain repertoire of things that you've created. You need to, you need to show that you've done something. And how do you do that when you've done all of the right things, you know, building on your training and, and growing and then being thrown into a space where or into a an industry where there's there's just too many barriers to you being able to even get out the gate to create anything and get it seen by anyone um and these are you know people who are community builders that's who they are they are they are the as i think jill said they're they're the entrepreneurs they are the community builders they are the people who are wanting to make people's lives better these are hugely beneficial people and we're like we squash them before they get out the gate <laughs> no, and I, yeah and i think one of the biggest like i hear your story and i think one of the biggest failings of uh the government responses at federal and provincial levels uh not just to the arts community to every small business uh arts or otherwise was the lack of commercial rent support that never flowed i mean the first version of that commercial rent program was optional landlords had to opt into it they had to choose to be benevolent to their tenants and if you did not have a benevolent landlord you did not get rent support uh, and we lost so many businesses in our communities as a result of that. Um, and I can hear from you how badly uh, it hurt the arts community and it's absolutely outrageous. And I'm so sorry that's been the case. Um, I'm so sorry. Uh, I feel like all I do these days is apologize to artists and teachers more than anything. Um, I think we'll go to uh, Justin next. Uh, 
and again, you know, what's changed for your sector since COVID? Well, I think the biggest change that we're seeing, uh, and as this goes on longer and longer, what we're seeing is we're seeing people leave the sector. And I think that is what the change is going to be. And because they haven't had the support from the multiple layers of government to the actual workers in the sector, uh, people are trying to find other work. People who work in the arts and culture sector have very transferable skills to other industries. Uh, and in other industries, it's a less precarious job, uh, work environment. So you're seeing people who they don't want to struggle anymore. They don't want to worry about when they're going to work again. So they're taking their skills and they're moving them into other sectors. And I think that's the biggest thing that we're seeing right now. And the longer we go on, the longer we don't have support for the people in, who actually work in this sector, the more people are going to leave. And when the sector is able to start coming back, we might not have the people there to actually make it, have it recover because the, they've left the sector. And I think that's the biggest thing that uh, you know, we're seeing in the sector right now is that people are leaving. People are, they're not getting the support, they, but they need to support themselves. Uh, and it's taken a huge toll on them financially, a huge toll on them mentally, and they're not willing to put up that fight anymore. Uh, and so that's, I think, the biggest thing that we're seeing in the sector that we need to fix and find ways to fix. Thank you so much. Um, and then we'll go to Brian next and then Ali. Uh, so I wanted to talk about the mental health piece that, that Jill brought up. And I think that's so important because for me, I remember we were right in the middle of rehearsals when everything got shut down. Um, and uh, and then we didn't, I didn't sing, like these are people that you sing with and you rehearse with every day for, I mean, I mean every week for hours. Like I spend hundreds of hours with my fellow colleagues at the Toronto Mendelssohn Choir. They're a family in many ways, shape, or form. And then trying to move things online into a digital platform um, and, and to do virtual choir recordings and stuff opens a whole other bottle and is uh, of issues, especially associated with artists. So, so, so many of us deal with issues like imposter syndrome and feeling like we don't belong and, and trying to do that, trying to record yourself in isolation from everybody else that you normally rely on while having while spending three hours to try and find one good solid take of your six minute song that you can submit with everybody else it's it puts you in a really weird headspace like you've had to rethink the way that you rehearse the way that you produce music the way that you sound um and, and the way that you look which is something that normally choristers don't think about that nearly as much as they needed to now that we're in this very very visual uh, virtual stream so and I remember the very first time that we did the first virtual choir piece that we had, it, it ended up being released for Mother's Day. And it was something that we had worked on from, um, from basically the beginning of April. And I remember I was in tears because it was the first time I had heard those voices in so long. And that they had just, that's, that's, that's really, and it worries me because I don't know the next time I'll be able to hear everybody together in one place. And it's very hard like, to, to get everybody back. I don't know that the choir will look the same when we're all able to come back. I don't know that we want it to look the same when we all come back as well too. But then it's also thinking about my fellow course, like, like many other arts performers, I don't just have one hat, I do multiple things. So working as an arts journalist as well too, I'm one of the few people, actually I think the only one left uh, in the entire region who writes about choral music exclusively. And I write for the whole note and I write for Ludwig Van Toronto, but the, the work is gone. There's, I write my monthly column now for the whole note and that's it and I used to have to go through I would pour through hundreds of listings over the course of a month to find out which ones do I want to talk about 
and now there are no listings. Like there's actually nothing for me to look at now to be like, this is, I'm getting a little emotional thing. There's nothing there for me to look at and be like, this is what I want to focus on this month because this is what's really important to me. That, and it's so much harder to do that work now because it's not about writing about what there is. It's writing about the loss that we've had. And I think that that's so important for us as, as musicians talk about, because I would like to be back in a room talking with my fellow musicians, making beautiful music and seeing them and getting involved in their lives. But it's too dangerous to do that. And we have to make sure that we're building the resilience into our communities and making sure that these people do come back because Justin is so right. There are people who are not going to come back. There are people who have lost their lives in our industries and they're not, they're never going to come back. And we have to make sure that we're, we're paying attention to this as, as we're building forward because the costs are actual lives and actual stories that we will have lost and we won't get back. Thank you so much, Brian. And we'll pop over to uh, Ali. Wow, um, Brian, thank you for sharing that. Honestly, I just wanna come up there and sing with you, um, but alas, we can't. Um, and uh, I, I wanna uh, speak to that because obviously there's been a lot of stuff in the news, um, but I, I really wanna commend all of us artists who have lost their jobs, who in many respects have lost their livelihoods, but we are cognizant of the fact because I think of our deep wells of empathy, that what we do is in fact dangerous. And while I would love to get back and have a thousand people in an auditorium, I understand that that's not the thing to do. So I just, I think it's important for all of us. I know and it's very difficult, but I think it's important for all of us to take stock of our um, strength, our resolve and our empathy in that respect. Um, Definitely, one of the things I predicted early on was that there's going to be a mass exodus of talent, 100%. Because as time goes on, people invariably will decide to leave. Moreover, you're going to have uh, uh, young people looking at the employment prospects, looking at a life and saying, nope, not for me. Now, the other final thing though that I think about is because we've moved into this place in which locally we cannot gather, what does it mean to create local art now? What, what is that? What is uh, uh, Toronto Center art? What is Toronto St. Paul's art? W what does it look like? When our entire uh, uh, culture has become TikTok, we got a problem. And the other, the reason I think that is on, 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 the, on, my, on our podcast, we had uh, uh, Ron Debert, who is uh, the director of Citizen Lab. And he wrote this book called Reset. And it's all about social media and its uh, adverse effects. Um, but one of the things that he speaks of is that one of the ways out of the misinformation, the disinformation, the rage, all that kind of stuff, is not focusing solely on STEM, on science, technology, engineering, math, to be the answer to all our problems. And that I think is the thing that I think about is that what happens to society when it's devoid of art? And I'm not just speaking about performing arts or visual arts, I'm also speaking about the humanities in general. What happens when people aren't learning literature, history, philosophy, science, poetry, the things that if you pick up a piece of Shakespeare, or if you were to, you know, uh, Susie really mentioned this amazing thing that the, the transferable skills that you get making art, you know, if you pick up Handel and all of a sudden you're singing that, but then you realize the history of that and 
what you learn about the world and, and, and not just what's in front of you, but what preceded you and how that just, I don't want to say it makes you a better person, but I'll say it. It makes you a more empathetic, a more understanding, a, a broader individual. And if I really do feel that if we take this away from society, society is, is really hurt by this. So, you know, life beats down and crushes the soul and art reminds us that you have one, as Stella Adler says. And that's what I worry about. Thank you so much, Ali. And as you were speaking, I couldn't help but think of um, during World War II uh, when Winston Churchill was asked about uh, why he wasn't cutting arts funding. Um, and, you know, mm -hmm. I, I think about the similar context in COVID-19 um, and his response was, well, then what are we fighting for? Yeah, what you are know, we fighting what for? Kind of, what, are we, what kind of world are we fighting for uh, if we don't have arts and culture? Um, and I, I think yeah. it's crazy in COVID-19. <laughs> like like, like imagine. What kind of communities are we fighting to have without the arts? Um, yeah. Okay, so we're gonna move on to one final question and we've only got about 12 minutes left. Um, so uh, we'll try to keep our, our answers short and sweet. Uh, and this section is about solutions. So we've talked a lot about the problems, but what are the solutions? Um, and if you wanna talk about that in terms of, you know, what are solutions that individuals can take to support artists? What are the solutions that policymakers and governments need to be taking and looking at? Uh, what, uh, what do organizations need to look at? Whatever your angle or perspective, um, but let's get at the solutions to make sure we have a, a vibrant arts and culture sector um, post, uh, post pandemic. Uh, to start us off, let's go to Justin. Okay, I'll keep, I'll try and keep it brief so everyone else can uh, weigh in as well. Uh, we need to have a united voice. And that's the most important thing. Um, if we have a united voice for to support the arts and culture sector, we will be able to get through this. If we splinter and have everyone asking for different things, you know, if I ask for A, Ali asks for B, and Vicky asks for C, we're going to get D, which is none of the above. And I think that is something that we need to focus on and that, you know, whatever our backgrounds are, you know, we need to come together at this time and make sure that we're united. We also need to make sure that there is a, a universal basic income. Uh, you know, I think that's something that, you know, will allow people to take some of the struggle out of the art and to take some of the precariousness, precariousness out of the arts. I think it's something that we also need to focus on. So I think I'll leave it there. I think the two things that we need to focus on is united, you know, we're stronger united and that, you know, apart we will fall. And of course we need to push all levels of government for a un uh, universal basic income. Amazing, thank you so much. Uh, and I, I can't say uh, enough uh, what a powerful role uh, arts unions uh, play in, in having that collective voice. So thank you for the work that you're doing at IATSE. Um, Let's go to uh, Brian next. Uh, and I think to, to anyone watching as well, uh, if you have suggestions on solutions that you wanna share with us, uh, put them in the comments in the Facebook Live feed below. Uh, we'd love to see them, we'd love to hear them. Uh, so if you've got comments for uh, suggestions for how we can save our arts community, uh, throw them down in the comments below. Uh, let's go to Brian next. So Ali said earlier that there were 650,000 people right across the country that were employed by the arts and his right. 
But yesterday in the economic snapshot, we saw only about 35. Um, there's some new data that's in there. Only 35% of those people were eligible for the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy. That's ridiculous, which means that over 400,000 people who are artists in this country did not qualify for the Emergency Wage Subsidy. So it has to be, there's lots of money out there. We're seeing it go to the bank. Three, three quarters of a billion dollars went to the banks. Um, three quarters of a trillion dollars, sorry, my bad, um, went to the banks. They didn't, it's not being geared towards people. It's just like, imagine what that money would mean for the arts industry right across uh, right across the country. So it, 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 it's about things like a universal basic income. It's about making sure that the money that's being out there is allocated to the right places. It's about reform of our funding agencies that for far too long have been um, white people giving money to white organizations and then forgetting everybody else that's in between that. So there are some changes that are starting to happen from the arts funders, but that work needs to happen. There needs to be anti-harassment that's built into these things so that we do not have artistic directors abusing their artists, that there is recourse for these artists to go to when stuff like this happens, that these organizations are accountable to that work. Um, and to anti-harassment, anti-oppression, anti and making sure that there, there's inclusion in, in, in this work as well too. And then one other thing that we've seen over the course of the last little bit is that organizations have shrunk to their administration. So as arts organizations are fa have faced the pandemic, they shrunk to their administration and the artists are somewhere out here. And the artists are, are have to go to the government themselves to get the money. Meanwhile, the administration have applied for the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy. They're they're using the grants to cover the cancellation fees for for their venues. They're using the grants to cover their um, the, the cancellations to whatever um, they need, but it's not getting to the actual uh, to the artists themselves. So there needs to be a restructuring of the way in which we make sure that workers are the focus of what we're doing, and that 100%, like Elise said, they're not shovel, violin, same thing, voice, acting, Shakespeare literature, humanities, put it all together. We are all working towards a better society, whatever your tool might be, the pen or a sword, put it like we need to make sure that we're, uh, we're putting people at the, at the front and center of what we're doing, not big banks, not big corporations, and, and not this, this, this archaic focus on, on institutions as opposed to the individual artists themselves. Thank you so much, Brian. Uh, let's go to Vicky next. Solutions, how do we save and support our arts and culture sectors? I, I I'll talk a little bit more about something that I've advocated for that's like it's a it's a very small thing but I think post or during the pandemic when we have so many artists who are leaving um, I I know you introduced me because I put in my bio that I'm an artist entrepreneur I think that shovel and a you know that same shovel and a violin being the same thing even just in the just encouraging artists to reimagine themselves as artist entrepreneurs, as creative entrepreneurs, as actor entrepreneurs, just add that title. And it's amazing what that'll change in terms of just a self-confidence of any kind of creator, because for the, that for the reason that the violin and the shovel are not considered the same, they're not, you say you're an artist. I talk with so many different actors specifically who cringe when they're at, any event anywhere where they're asked what do you do and they have to say I'm an actor and then the just the feeling of like just uh, you know sympathy that comes what's your real job what they say uh, what's yeah, your real job it's so gross because we're not respected we're just not so you know as small as this is just call yourself a creative entrepreneur and and people will be like oh you're an entrepreneur all of a sudden it's impressive which is disgusting but it's true so just that very small thing is one thing that we can do um and then i think everyone else has sort of just taken the words out of my mouth in terms of larger on a larger scale so i'll leave it at that 
Thank you so much, Vicki. Uh, let's go to Jill next. Hey everyone. So I'm gonna, I wrote them down so that I wouldn't uh, ramble. So uh, the misclassification of workers, big issue that needs to be addressed, livable wages, uh, basic income, paid sick days. Many artists and cultural workers, gig economy workers do not have that. Um, I would argue that everyone needs to contact their local MPPs, contact your city councillor here in Toronto. Next year is the year of public arts. Let's ensure uh, that we actually see that. Um, and, you know, I also want to say that uh, administratively, a lot of small and medium collectives have said to me that the applications that they need to fill out um, alone is a full-time job. And, you know, the quote that I was told is, Jill, it just demonstrates how out of touch the Ontario government is with small and medium arts collectives for us to have to fill out dozens of pages when we don't even have staff. And uh, last but not least, um, I want it, and a lot of people across Ontario and Toronto want it. We need to get comedians Comedians need to be recognized as artists. They need to be included in granting opportunities as do fashion designers. It, it's absurd that the fashion industry and, and comedic artists and cultural workers are not recognized in Ontario Arts Council in so many granting opportunities across our province and our nation. Thank you. That's such a good point, Jill. I mean, you know, arts and culture workers are so much more than, you know, artists and actors, uh, but it, it's so many jobs. It's so many jobs and they're all so important. Uh, okay, we're gonna go to Ali to wrap us up. Uh, solutions. Solutions. Uh, yeah, I think I think what everyone is kind of saying is that, you know, to, to be viewed as, as a worker to, because the dignity of a job, it's a job, it's, it's a job. Um, and then uh, I, I will also say that it's uh, kind of, you know how you go to the coffee shop and you say to yourself, this is for everybody watching, and you say to yourself, I, I want that fair trade organic coffee. I want you all to start looking for some fair trade organic art, art that is locally sourced, art that is like made uh, 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 properly and uh, humanely and pays and, and start to ask yourself like questions as you consume art. Is this person getting paid? Is this a service? Why am I just getting this for free? Isn't this work? And start to ask yourself, hey, where'd they go to school? That school must've cost a lot. Just to kind of make yourself a far more educated consumer of art. Because art is very poetic and art is very beautiful, but there's, there's, there's far more prose then there is poetry, to be honest. So that's what I will say, stick to the pros. And also, if you wanna know more about the Arts New Deal, please go to makeartswork.ca. Amazing. Thank you all so, so much. Uh, we're just about at eight o'clock. Uh, so I wanna thank you all for helping us stay on time tonight. Uh, I wanna thank everyone who's tuned in. I wanna thank all of our amazing panelists. Uh, I think we've had a, a absolutely phenomenal conversation tonight uh, covering uh, a broad spectrum of sectors of the arts and culture um, uh, sector. <laughs> um, and <laughs> Uh, and we've had a great conversation tonight. And uh, I just, I wanna thank all of you so much from the bottom of my heart. Um, and I know that, you know, as uh, provincial legislators, uh, myself and Jill uh, are gonna take some of these solutions back into Queens Park um, and keep fighting and advocating for the supports that you need as artists. Um, 
thank you so, so much for being here with us tonight. Thank you for everyone at home for watching. Uh, Miigwetchin, have a great night, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. You can continue the conversation we started at our Town Hall for the Arts by following Jill Andrew, Brian Chang, Ali Momin, and Space Space Revolution on Facebook. <laughs>